You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. So we ended last time with Solomon building the temple, right? This just magnificent moment. And even the things King Solomon shares, beautiful prayer towards God and a benediction to lay out this foundation of the temple. No longer did the nation of Israel need temporary locations to worship God. Now they had a temple, a glorious, marvelous temple that had taken many, many years to get to the point of building and constructing and having together. And so that's where we kind of left off last week. We, we got to this point where there's this unbelievable temple to the Lord, and, and Solomon's influence and wisdom has grown, and it continues to grow, and then we kind of shift away from this temple being built, and I want you to look with me in 1 Kings chapter 10. We're going to kind of bounce around. Uh, I think a lot of the scripture will be out, up before you, uh, but I'll share it with you. In 1 Kings 10, we begin to see this shift in focus from Solomon Billy. The temple's done. And, but now he kind of shifts focus on his domain. And it says in 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 18, it says the king also made a great ivory throne. I want you to just imagine with me this throne room you walk into where King Solomon places himself on this throne. Look at this throne, right? It's made out of ivory, this ivory throne. That, that's crazy enough, right? But, but he doesn't stop there. He overlaid it with the finest gold, and the throne itself had six steps leading up to it. Throne had a round top, and on each side were these armrests, and on the side of that are two lions standing beside the armrests, while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the, step, of the six steps. So imagine you walk into this throne room, six steps, it's ivory overlaid in gold, and you have to walk in between these lions just to meet with the king. All King Solomon's drinking vessels, right, were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forces of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were silver, because silver was considered as anything in the days of Solomon. It was nothing. Silver was nothing, because everything's gold. What kind of world is this? And then once every three years, a fleet of ships from Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes and peacocks. Like this guy had stuff coming, he had his own zoo he's making right now. Right? He's this unbelievable throne room. He, he's creating a zoo, he's got gardens, he's, he's created this utopia that had never existed before. And thus it says King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And it made an impact. It made an impact in the known world at that time. And he would be visited by leaders who would bring him gifts. Why? Well, think about it. If, if you have the wealthiest kingdom in the area, you wanted to be friends with this guy. You did not want him to be your enemy, right? And so Solomon is visited from leaders and royalty all over the world. But it's during this time that we see Solomon's love for his stuff 
and his influence begin, begin to mean more to him than his pursuit of God. The great moments in the temple in dedicating it to the Lord and to the people, his heart begins to shift and love the things he's been blessed with more than the God who provided those things to him. So, of course, many, as we know, kind of out throughout history, one of the best ways to have a good relationship with a foreign people is to marry someone within that kingdom, right? Well, Solomon did this. It's during this period of time that he begins to acquire wives and concubines from foreign lands in these relationships. And, and, and by acquiring wives and concubines, by more wives and concubines, I mean like 700 wives and 300 concubines. Sister wives would even have an issue with that one, I think. And God had warned about this, right? He'd said, no, I, I want my people to be a light to all the nations around them. And so as he knew, God knew that as the ties of these relationships came in, that it would inevitably mean that the beliefs and practices of these other lands would have conflicting impact on the people in following the Lord alone. And so we come out of the temple. Solomon's seemingly lost his way, and it's confirmed for us in 1 Kings eleven six where it says, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And this is a phrase you continually see through First and Second Kings, through the remainder of the history. This phrase is used to compare all other kings moving forward. And David stands as the model one who helped the people focus on God and God alone. David was the model of what it looks like for a leader to follow God completely. So Solomon begins to build these relationships with other nations, and he's influenced by the relationships he has. And so Solomon begins to build what are called high places, right? These are mobile worship areas. In fact, the nation of Israel had had high places before in order to worship God. So this wasn't unusual in and of itself. What made it unusual and what made it evil in the sight of the Lord is that these high places were for foreign gods, other entities, that he's saying, look, I, I, need to, you know, I need to at least allow these other people to participate in their religion however they see fit. And he creates these high places within the boundaries of the land for all these foreign gods that had been introduced by all these alliances that he had with these wives and other women that he's acquired. And so Solomon's tragically turned away from the days he had experienced during the inauguration of the temple. And these are the final years leading up to what will be a devastating blow for the na nation of Israel. And so God, God shares with Solomon that due to his wickedness and idolatry that the kingdom be ripped apart. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11 where the Lord speaks to Solomon. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. 1 Kings eleven nine. 
The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, not just an oops, your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. For the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. I don't want us to miss in the midst of what God is sharing with Solomon, everything's going to be taken apart. The kingdom is going to be divided. But I don't want us to miss that God still had a desire for Jerusalem specifically to still be a light among the nations. He would still hold true to the covenant that he had made with his people. And so Solomon's life ended in tragedy. Solomon was greatly blessed by God, but he allowed God's gifts to dominate his affections. And the fault wasn't with God for giving Solomon so much, but but with Solomon, who though he had the wisdom to deal with such temptation chose to set his affections on the gifts, on the wealth, on the land, on the women, on the power, on the success, and not on the giver. So the man best qualified, right, earthly speaking, to live life successfully chose not to do so. Success in life, in the eyes of God, does not come automatically with the possession of wisdom, but with the application of of wisdom to one's life. Spiritual success depends not only on insight, but also on our choices. Solomon became distracted, and he fell in love with the things God hates. What distractions, even good things, I have to ask myself, might be winning over our affections? What distractions, even good things, might be winning over our affections. And so then Solomon's life ends and we have this division begin to occur. We have two other entities come in, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam, right, is Solomon's son. And God had said, during this time, I'm gonna rip the kingdom apart. And so Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he comes into power following his father's death. And Rehoboam travels to the northern tribes. Now, here's why that's important. Up in the northern tribes, they had been taxed quite a bit in order to help Solomon build up this magnificent kingdom that he has. So there's just a great relationship right there already. Because Judah, guess who didn't have to pay the taxes? Judah. So there's this, there's this hateful relationship already, and Rehoboam comes in and he says, you know what, I, I need to try to secure the support of the north. And they reach out to him. He, they, he said, what, what can we do? 
And he said, well, they said, well, let's, let's maybe have a less of a tax burden on us, right? And he goes, oh, I don't know about that. We'll have to, well, I'll have to ponder that. He begins to talk to some other guys and he comes down to this conclusion. He says, listen, I know you've asked me to tax you less. Instead, I think I'm going to tax you more. Shockingly, the northern tribes reject Rehoboam and his taxes, right? They, they reject this Davidic dynasty. They say, we are done with this. We are done with you. And they select Jeroboam as their king. And so Rehoboam, fleeing out of the northern, what will become the northern kingdom, flees to Jerusalem, and he establishes the southern kingdom. And so Rehoboam would continue in the footsteps of his dad by establishing these mobile worship sites, these high places for the various gods and cults to worship at. He kind of just continues in dad's footsteps and does that thing. And so now, in this moment, uh, you can see the kingdom that David and Solomon had secured is now divided. And you can, I think we have a map here we can look at where we have this northern kingdom of Israel and this southern kingdom, Judah. Jeroboam leading in the north, Rehoboam now leading in the south. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they, they kind of during their reigns, they would just kind of fight over where that line actually would land. And Rehoboam was successful in securing Jerusalem, and so that left the northern kingdom, Israel, without Jerusalem. Uh, easy access to Jerusalem. This is important as we continue. So we have Jeroboam in this northern kingdom. And so Jeroboam, he begins to establish these worship centers, these high places as well. But specifically, there's two that are pointed out, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And the specific reason, if when you look at a map and you look at Bethel, it's very close to Jerusalem, but in the northern kingdom. The reason why Jeroboam chooses to put this worship center in Bethel was to try to detour those who might be headed to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple. What they had always done to be able to practice and worship the Lord and go to sacrifices and meet with the priests, they, this was part of their practice. And he said, this can't happen because if they do this, their hearts are going to be turned away from my reign. And these weren't just any old alternative worship sites in Dan and in Bethel. Scripture tells us that Jeroboam, he took a move out of the playbook from Israel's past. Look at 1 Kings 12, verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. The northern kingdom, right, will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then their heart, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king, the king took counsel, right? So somebody helped him come to the, this was the best idea. The king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, Look, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
We saw this in Exodus. The same thing. He set one in Bethel. He put one in Dan. He started new feasts. He had these priests uh, put in place for these golden calves, the, the gods that had rescued the people. New sacrifices to lead the people in worshiping these new gods that he had created. Why? In order to control and retain power among the northern kingdom. Jeroboam used a false religion to deceive the people, causing them to sin. And so Jeroboam, differently than David becomes the model, Jeroboam becomes the model of wickedness that all the kings would be compared to based on how evil they were. It says in various kings, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. How would you like to be known for the rest of history as the guy that didn't just make an oops, but were able to get an entire nation to disobey God, to turn their back on God, and now be linked with anyone else that was ever evil, like you are the epitome of evil. But what made a a good king versus a bad king? And the various prophets that would attempt to point out to the kings that they needed to go back to serving God alone, use this criteria. Do you worship God of Israel alone? Have you, gotten, have you rid Israel of idolatry and are you faithful to the covenant that I have made with you? And so now moving forward, you're going to have this comparison with all the kings to David and Jeroboam. Moving forward, kings would be compared to David, whether or not they led like him, or by being compared to Jeroboam, whether or not they led like Jeroboam. The leaders of the people held the responsibility of whether or not they led their people to sin. Leadership matters. And each one of these kings, the focus is more on the kings and their lack in their ability to lead, causing the people to sin. God takes seriously the spiritual direction of his people. Paul brings this back often throughout his letters as he's giving the newly establishing churches in the New Testament. He, he points out to them. I think Ephesians 4 is helpful for us to think through. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God takes seriously his leaders leading his people, which is why we should hold our leaders to a high standard. Because it is easy for one person to have an influence among many that lead them to sin. The foundation God expected from his people in the nation of Israel, even during its division and its leadership, is the same as it is for each of us today. 
worship God alone. Do not follow after idols. Don't love the things of this world more than God. And be faithful to the instructions he provides for us in his word. So we have a divided kingdom now. What was life like in the divided kingdom? Well, we have over 300 years of division among the kingdom and horrible things take place. And we don't have time to look at every king between the northern and southern kingdoms. But I do want to highlight a few of them to help give us a taste of what led to the ultimate judgment God would allow in both kingdoms to fall and go into exile. And so we have the northern kingdom. They had about a 208-year history. And the northern kingdom was characterized by instability. Things just constantly going wrong. It's 19 kings came from nine different families. Eight of its kings were either assassinated or committed suicide. There was constant struggle at who would lead. There was no one family that kind of led everything and, and brought any type of stability, but there was constant battling even within itself for ownership and rule of the nation. We see this even early on as they couldn't even figure out where their capital city was going to be. Right? They, they start out in, in Shechem. It's initially selected because of its long history as, as a tribal and religious center, but it begins to move in, in, in about two other places until it finally lands on a fourth location. Finally, Samaria became the standing capital of the northern kingdom. And so there's just constant conflict and instability. They don't even know where their capital is. They're not sure who's going to overthrow the next king, who's conspiring against who. So it just makes the working environment within the kingships very difficult, very hard. And, and there's various acts from all the other kings in, northern, in the northern kingdom. Right? They continue to build up locations and images to worship and celebrate a variety of false gods. They ignored the consistent message from the prophets who were used of God to warn the kings of their wrongdoing. They, they murdered and conspired against one another. It was a constant struggle for power. The, the wickedness and the false worship got to the point in several instances where the false worship led several to lead the people in sacrificing children to false gods. I, I just think, overall, from, from, from the time of the temple till exile, it's only 400 years, 400 years. That's not a lot of time when you're thinking history to go from this beautiful temple to worship God alone to now we are, literally it talks about kings leading their children to be sacrificed before some deity, some god. All this, again, going back to Jeroboam who said, look, these are your gods. You don't need the Lord anymore. There's one king who stands out in leading the people into this dark rejection of following God alone. And it's King Ahab. Maybe some of you are, are familiar with him. He ends up marrying Jezebel. 
This is a relationship. Jezebel was from Sidon, a Mediterranean coastal town, which had a lot of outside influence from other cults and beliefs. Um, And she brings with her the worship of Baal. And Jezebel was very committed to the worship of Baal. Uh, In fact, she persecuted the worship of Yahweh, of the Lord, and she demanded the Israelites to worship Baal, putting in place priests of Baal, hundreds of them, to help the people know that Baal is the one we need to serve, no one else. We see Ahab, who departs from the worship of God, he goes along with Jezebel, helps build a temple to Baal. He ends up conniving with Jezebel and, and has this murder of Naboth, who's, he just wanted this vineyard, he says, I really want this, and he pouted, and his wife was like, you know what, I bet you I can take care of it. Ends up having Naboth murdered, and then takes on, uh, they're able to take on this land, which this wickedness drew out this drought and famine on the land. And there's an adversary to uh, Ahab. There's someone who's kind of always this thorn in the side of Ahab, and it's Elijah. He consistently, uh, 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 which we'll talk about here in a minute, but Ahab, who's consistently leading the people deeper and deeper into idolatry and further away from worshiping the Lord alone. And it's not like Ahab was the worst. It wasn't the most violent, right? If we were looking at just the violent scale, there were some others to choose from. There's plenty of other bad kings and plenty of, who were guilty of more bloodshed, but Ahab seems to have been attached to the most severe condemnation, even more than Jeroboam. And it's likely that this was because of his just brazen nature of his infidelity to God in building a temple to Baal, and the way he just continually resisted God's word through Elijah reaching out to him. And he consistently led the people deeper into idolatry and further away from worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, alone. I I think one of the things that we can take away from Ahab being seen as so evil is that for sin to be deep and damaging, it doesn't have to be shocking and violent. If we want to just go violence, Jehu, another king of the north, right, he ends up destroying Ahab's descendants by creating two piles of heads. Okay, that's violence. That's just evil. But yet Ahab is seen as more evil than that. So Jehu, he killed far more people than Ahab, but it's Ahab for whom the Bible has a particular horror because his sin was at a deeper level. He led people away from God. And all other sins start from there. Certain sins have a momentary complication. Other sins impact the eternal destination of people. And I think that's why Ahab is pointed out as one of the worst, as the worst, because he consistently led the people away from God. And so this is the northern kingdom. There are no highlights. The only small highlight is the fact that Jehu finally does take care of Ahab and his impact by absolutely destroying Ahab's family. And if you've ever thought the Bible to be boring, just read what Jehu does. 
to Ahab, to Jezebel. Right, just, just take a glance. But this is the state of the northern kingdom. No highlights. Everything just, just constantly sliding down. But then we have Judah, the southern kingdom here. They have a 345-year history, right? They would actually keep the kings that were from the Davidic dynasty. They were able to keep that line going. This is helpful to remember as we head into uh, our season two of, of this series. But out of the 20 kings in Judah, right, only nine are seen as good. The rest are evil and worse than the ones before. But nine were seen as good, ones that followed God in the ways of David. And they would lead the people in various degrees of reform. But here's the thing that's notated for each one of these except for two, that they left the areas in which people could continue to worship false gods. They had left the high places. They had led in some type of reform to turn back to God, but they still said, you know what, well, there's still some of those fringe people, we'll let them do what they wanna do. Out of those nine, only two removed the high places and the other images that were being used for worshiping and honor false gods. This, they, they were the only two, Hezekiah and Josiah, who we saw true reform from. But the same lesson that we learn from the northern kingdom is the same for the southern kingdom. While Judah saw more stability, more reform, and even had seasons where the temple was secured for proper worship, the influence of false teaching was still finding its way into the lives of God's people Josiah comes the, towards his reign and they have lost the, the writings of God. They had lost all direction. They had stripped the temple of its gold in order to pay off other leaders to secure their peace. God's people were and still are though to be a light among all the other nations who were following false gods in their own way. The nation of Israel once longed for a king to be just like all the other nations. And they got what they wanted. But this longing to be just like the other nations has led them to their embrace of false gods, wickedness, sacrifices to false gods, and the judgment of a holy God. They just wanted to be like everybody else. They just wanted to look like every other nation. But that's not what God had for them. He wanted them to stand out among all the other nations, to be different, to have a different kind of hope. Look, it wasn't like the the northern and southern kingdoms were somehow unique in the violence that they experienced. All around them was constant battling and trying to gain control. And God said, look, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. Just follow me. And you're going to be a shining light to all the craziness and madness all around you. And I said, but we want to be like them. And God said, okay. During this time, we have the prophets who cry out. And we, we just don't have time to do it justice to look at all the different prophets, but, but God didn't leave his people without attempts to remind them of his care for them. 
through the prophets of the Old Testament, we see God point out the insignificance of the false gods that people had so easily embraced. And I think one of the clearest examples of this is, is a fairly well-known story with Elijah and this incident he has with the priests of Baal during the reign of Ahab. So we're back to Ahab again. I want you to look with me in 1 Kings 18. And there's several verses here that I want to look at. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 20. It says, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's saying, stop playing this game, like trying to just appease everybody. No, just choose. Just choose. And the people, they didn't answer him a word. They didn't know what to say. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you, you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so all the people answered, it is, it is well spoken. Okay, let's, let's do this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us but there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah speaks up and he mocks them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Then he begins to really mock Baal. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself He's busy in the men's room. Or maybe, maybe, maybe he's on a journey. He's just not here. Cry louder. Or perhaps he's asleep. He must be awakened, so be loud. And how do they respond? They cry louder. They begin to cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They're now crying out to this God. Look at this. Have this scene in your mind, the madness of this, trying to get this God to acknowledge them that doesn't exist. They're cutting themselves, covered in blood, physically responding in some horrible way to try to draw the attention of their God. And as midday passed, verse 29, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation of the sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around this altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on 
the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. So they get these massive jars, they fill them with water and they pour it, four of them, onto this wood. Not the best way to begin to start a fire. And he says, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, look at the difference in how Elijah speaks to the Lord. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. So answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, not one of them escape. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's an unbelievable moment contrasted with the priests of Baal who are cutting themselves, bleeding all over, crying out to get the attention of their God. Elijah prays, God responds, and for a moment, the people recognize that God is in control and that they've been lied to, that God would not be mocked, that he would not allow his people to continue down the path they were on without his clear voice beckoning them to turn from their false ways and once again enjoy the unity they once enjoyed with him as their God alone. It's as if Elijah comes in in this moment and says, guys, look, look at the life you're living right now. Is this really better than what you had? Nearly 20 prophets are recorded during this time. Most notably, we have Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and several others. But their message was the same as God's message was to his people from the very beginning of creation. Worship God alone, rid yourselves of idols, and be faithful to God's ways. All of mankind is without excuse. We're not done with the bad news. Because now we come to the destructive end of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel, Assyria, Assyria, who they actually had some relationships with to help ward off other places, Assyria finally says, you know what? We want this land. So Assyria attacks, begins to take over the northern cities of Israel. The attacks continue to the point where Assyria placed this kind of puppet king, we're in control of Hosea, and Hosea decides in a last-ditch effort, I'm going to fight back. Didn't work. Samaria is besieged and eventually falls and Assyria begins a series of deportations and in this place they put foreign people who are loyal to Assyria. This is kind of how the normal practice, who do we put in their place? We rip the, the people out of their land and we put people who are faithful to Assyria into the land. And so the nation, the people of Israel are taken away. Foreign people are brought in to settle the land. And so we have the end 
of Israel in 722 BC. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, continues for another 130 plus years, 136, 138 years. Assyria at first began to make moves to taking over various sections of Judah, but eventually we kind of have the the demise of the uh, Assyrian rule and reign where Babylon then comes in and the Babylonian Empire takes over the Assyrian Empire. And so eventually the Babylonians come in to remove the Assyrian Empire and Babylon eventually starts overtaking Judah, first with just building relationships and essentially taking over, but then finally actually completing their dominion over Judah by coming into Jerusalem absolutely destroying and dismantling the temple, burning it, stealing everything that remained that the the nation hadn't already done themselves. They began to destroy everything. And then multiple deportations would take place as the people of Judah were taken away to Babylon. We started with Solomon proclaiming this great prayer to God at this temple, God is with us. To now it sits in flames, the people being taken away to foreign lands, foreigners have overtaken the land of promise. Can you imagine being taken away and you're looking back at the smoke of your city being burned The independent Israelite Judean state, which had existed for more than 400 years, had come to an end. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple of the Lord had been destroyed. And the heirs of the once great Davidic dynasty were prisoners in exile. Darkness had arrived. Only questions remained. It seemed that everything at this point had ended. Had God finally abandoned his people? Had he finally had enough? What happened to the glorious promises, though, that he made to Israel's ancestors? Was God really finished with us? Well, tune in next time, and you will find out what happens after that, right? But seriously, as, as we look at this, I, I don't want us to miss this really interesting part at the end of 2 Kings. It's also recorded in 2 Chronicles. Look with me all the way at the end. We get a glimpse into what appears to be a new day dawning for the people of God. The tide appears to be changing a little bit. So we have in 2 Kings 25, look at verse 20, starting in verse 27. Everybody's put in exile, everything's destroyed, right? Bouncing head 30 some years. In the 37th year of the exile, a Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he was the last remaining legitimate king of Judah. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Muradach, which is a horrible name to give anyone, <laughs> king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, listen, graciously freed Jehoiakim king of Judah from prison. He spoke kindly to him. Look, and he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, 
and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Whatever he need, needed, he, he got. Sitting at the king's table, dining with the, the kings and other royalty and leadership. Go from all this destruction. Jehoiakim has to take off his prison garments. Nothing had really changed except now it seems that something different was happening. There's this kindness extended to Jehoiakim. Out of everyone, Jehoiakim is chosen by the king of Babylon. Had Jehoiakim done great things for God? Some way deserved this honor even from the standpoint of God looking at Jehoiakim? No, in fact, he's one of the kings who did evil in the sight of God. There was no good moment for him. Yet in God's sovereignty, Jehoiakim would serve as a signal of hope that God had not abandoned his people. He didn't deserve it. Definitely didn't earn it. A dark time had arrived for the nation, but God was not done yet. His promise of a Messiah, a true king, was still coming. Several hundred years later, there would be another dark time. On a cross hung a man in whom the people of God had put all their trust in. This is him. And yet again, it seemed that tragedy would win the day, that all hope was lost for God's people. Because this man, Jesus, the Son of God, well, he died. He was murdered. He was placed in a tomb. He was buried. Jesus' followers ran and hid in fear. All seemed hopelessly lost. Then comes one of my favorite passages in Scripture. In John 20, we find Mary Magdalene weeping outside what now she has discovered an empty tomb the tomb that Jesus' lifeless body had once been placed. She's just now discovered moments before thinking someone had desecrated Jesus' body by stealing it away. And in John 20, verse, in verse 11, we have recorded, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you, who are you looking for? And supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you, have, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I'll take him back, I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And with the use of her name, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanon, which means teacher. 
And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Hope had come. Hope came through Jesus as the sacrifice for all the sin and idolatry and abandonment mankind had committed or would ever commit. God fulfills his promises. We are more like Jehoiakim than we would like to admit. Lost in our sin and helpless on our own, but the King of Kings has reached out and made a way of rescue through Jesus. He has given us the title of sons and daughters seated with him in heavenly places. And we too can run to God. We can turn from our sin, embrace the perfect sacrifice Christ made in our place, and then live as a light, the same light Israel was supposed to be among the heathen nations. There is hope for this world. It is, a found, it is found among his people, the church, proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ to the world, looking forward to the completion of his work. And so I leave us with a question. Is Jesus your hope? And are you his light? Lord, we do not deserve your love. We do not deserve the fact that you have rescued us. We are so much like the people we've read about and all the evil and the wickedness and so much we allow to happen, so much evil even within our own selves. So Lord, would you find us faithful, forgive us, and we thank you for the forgiveness that you provided us through Jesus. Help us to be a light in a world that desperately needs the kind of light kind of God you are. Help us to rise up, to live in the hope that we have in Jesus, and to live with boldness in the culture that you have placed us in, in this time. Help us to be found faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.